And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11 and from verse 25 uh, to verse 30. Well, as we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, you may remember if you were here two weeks ago uh, that as we come to chapters 11 and 12 of Matthew, we come to this section where people are responding to Jesus Christ. They're responding to the things that he has done, the, the things that he has taught them, uh, the claims that he makes about himself. In chapters 11 and 12, we see the response to all that has gone on uh, from chapter 1 all the way really through uh, chapter 10. Uh, much of the responses that we see in these chapters are very much the same kind of responses uh, that we see uh, today. Uh, we've seen doubt so far, we've seen criticism, and we've seen coldness or, or apathy. Uh, notice with me, um, first of all, though, that before uh, we think about the response uh, tonight, notice in chapter 11 how the evidence is the same for each response. So if you look at chapter 11 and verse 5, the evidence that is given to John who doubts Jesus is this. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That's the evidence Jesus gives. But if you look at chapter 11 and verse 20, where Jesus denounces towns uh, which uh, uh, rejected him, notice he denounces the towns in which most of what his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. So as, as uh, Jesus offers the evidence of uh, chapter 11, verse 5 of his miracles, he also offers the same evidence to the, repent, the towns that did not repent. It's the same evidence. They're looking at the same Jesus, but the responses are all different. And so we see doubt and criticism and coldness. But tonight there is not... Uh, a negative response I want us to consider, but rather Matthew shows us or asks us to consider how to respond to Jesus. Notice in this passage how we should respond to the gospel. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 11 and verses 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is God's word. And it begins in verse 25 with uh, those three words, at that time. So we have to ask, what time? What time is he talking about? Well, it's the time where Jesus has just denounced 
the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. He has denounced them because they were unrepentant. They did not respond by turning away from sin and towards Jesus as they saw the miracles he performed and as they heard the good news of the, of the kingdom of God that he was proclaiming. And so at that time was a time where Jesus was, pronounced, was talking of negative responses or, or seeing those negative responses. And so here, at that time, Jesus is going to give us a contrast. He sets us up to compare the negative responses that we've seen so far with what those cities that he has just denounced should respond like. And so how is it that those cities, how is it that we should respond to Jesus? Well, the first way that we respond to Jesus is that we respond in humility. We respond in humility. It's strange after the words of judgment in verses 20 to 24 that Jesus at that time begins to praise God as he prays. It says in verse 25 that he praises his Father, Lord of heaven and earth. God here is described in terms of the personal relationship that Jesus has to him. That is, he is his Father. And God is described as the sovereign king, the Lord of heaven and earth. So he's the Father in relationship to Jesus, and he is described as the Lord of heaven and earth, the sovereign king of heaven and of earth. And Jesus praises his Father, who is the sovereign king, who is in control of all things, because he conceals and reveals it says these things from the wise and learned and reveals them to children. So he hides them from the wise and learned and he reveals these things uh, to children. He praises his father, the sovereign king, because he reveals and conceals to who he wills to do so. Well, what are these things that are talked about here? What is the, the things that are hidden and revealed? Well, those things are the truths of the kingdom of God that Jesus has been talking about, that we've been reading about so far in Matthew's gospel. Those things are, who is Jesus? Why has Jesus come? How should we respond to what he is saying and what we are seeing him do? Those are the things, those truths of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And Jesus praises his Father because it is his sovereign will to hide those things from the wise and learned. Now that's not saying that the gospel is hidden from intelligent people. It's not saying that only those who are of a low education can know God. It's not even saying that adults can't come to know the truths of the kingdom, only children can. It's not talking about intelligence, but intellectual pride. It's not talking about intelligence, but intellectual pride. God hides the truth of his kingdom from people who think 
that they are wise and don't need God to reveal himself to them. They are too clever, they got it all figured out, that they don't need to have somebody show them anything. They know it all. To those people, God hides the truth of the kingdom. God hides the truth of the kingdom from those who think that they can know God their own way. I can get to God any way I like. I can live however I want. To those, the truths of the kingdom are hidden. God hides the truth of the kingdom to those that think they don't need to know God because they can supply their own needs. I don't need anything. I have everything that I could possibly need, and I can provide it all myself. I don't need God. Basically, the truths of the kingdom of, uh, of God are concealed from those who are proud. Those who are proud, the, the know-it-alls. And on the contrary, Jesus praises his Father that he reveals the kingdom of God to, it says, little children. Little children. What's Jesus meaning here? Well, little children are those who are dependent people. Little children are those who cannot help themselves. If you think about it for a moment, uh, think about a ba- um, babies and, and toddlers. Uh, you don't see them uh, making dinner for the family. You don't see them uh, sometimes even doing basics when they're very little. You don't see uh, little babies changing um, their own nappies. You don't see them. I mean, if they did, they wouldn't need a nappy, would they? They could go uh, to the toilet. You don't see them doing that. You don't even see little babies moving very far on their own. They need to be picked up and carried somewhere. Babies and toddlers are completely dependent upon somebody else to help them do the most basic of things. And Jesus says it's to those, those who realize that before our Father, we are little children. Before our Father, we are totally dependent on him for everything. A little, to- a little baby can't be proud. I mean, you, you, they, don't, they, 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 they are dependent completely, and that's how God wants us to be. He doesn't want us to, to go around and think we can do everything on our own. Rather, we need to call out to him for help as little children. And to little children, those who are dependent on him, the kingdom of God is revealed. Jesus praises because you don't have to reach a standard to be in the kingdom of God. You don't have to try and be good enough. You literally have to be like a little child who holds their hands up and just asks for help. I can't do this on my own. That's how we know the kingdom of God. We can't save ourselves from sin. Uh, our sin is so, uh, so, so big and so gross and so, uh, so far, makes us so far from God. There is nothing that we can do to atone for it. We can't be good enough for God. We, God is, we looked this morning at how God, how God is holy 
And we can't make ourselves holy like God is holy by trying to scrub ourselves up. It does not work. Jesus has come to save us from our sins. So rather than try to be good enough to save ourselves, we ask for help. And when we ask for help, it's only then that we can enter the kingdom of God. As we were just singing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Or as uh, James writes in his letter, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, Christians as well, even though uh, we are in God's kingdom, we need to continue to respond to Jesus in humility. We can show pride as Christians, can't we? We can think that we've made it in the Christian life. We can be uh, pretty well behaved. We can look good, can't we, on the outside. We can be part of the church and be respectable members of our community. But if we're going to be part of God's kingdom, we have to depend on God every single day if we're going to live for his glory. We are never in a position this side of heaven where we can say, I have made it in God's kingdom. We are never where we ought to be, even though we are not where we once were. But we can also be pride in a, in a kind of uh, apathetic way. That is, we can live our lives not coming to God for any help in our Christian lives. We can close our Bibles and ignore that they're even there, and we can try and live each day in our own strength, not depending on God for help to live our lives for his glory. We need to respond to God in humility. God reveals himself to those who humble themselves before him as little children. And in verse 26, notice there that Jesus says that this is what the Father is pleased to do. Well, why is that? Surely uh, the Father would want a, a bunch of people who are, are super clever. Surely they would be much better uh, to represent him in this world. Why is it that God would rather have people who cannot do anything for themselves and are totally dependent? Well, the reason is that it is through uh, saving the humble, through saving little children, that God gets the glory. That's what we were, were reading about in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 in our Bible reading tonight. Uh, listen again to those words uh, from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. I'll show them uh, up on the screen, just a few of the, the words from that passage. Uh, God chose the lowly things, uh, sorry, verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And then he goes on to say, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The reason that God wants the humble, the little children, is because they are the ones that say to God, it is to you that gets all the glory for salvation. This is not about me. I have not been good enough. It is God who gets the glory. And it's through the salvation of those who know they are sinners that God also is able to reveal and to show his love and his compassion. 
So we respond in humility. But why is it that so many do not respond in this way? Why is it that so many do not humble themselves? Well, in verse 27, we read that this humility actually is a gift from God himself. Secondly, we respond by revelation. That is to say that we can only know God if he chooses to reveal himself to us. Look at uh, verse 27, and um, we can see the truth of this here. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Uh, no one, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, at first reading, uh, when I read uh, this verse, and it, this verse is similar to this in John, it kind of makes my head spin. I don't know about you, but I read it and I, I kind of think, what's going on here? What's Jesus talking about? But if we break the verse down a little bit, uh, we should be able to work through it and hopefully understand it. So first of all, he says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. So Jesus Christ has been given everything that is his Father's. But especially here, we're thinking about the truths of the kingdom of God. So Jesus has been given or committed with the authority to speak the truth about who God is and how we ought to respond. That's what it means to have the, be, have the things committed to him by his Father. The Father has given Jesus the authority to speak the truth of who God is and how to respond. Well, then it says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Well, that word then, know, uh, is a bit different to what we might first think. When uh, we think of the word know, we often think of, of knowing about, having information about. But the word actually speaks more of relationship. So an intimate relationship. Only the Father and the Son truly, in, in a relational sense, know each other in an intimate way. So therefore, what's going on here is that Jesus is able to reveal God to us, not only because the truth of who God is is committed to him, but also because he is a reliable testimony, because he truly knows God. I think an, an illustration might help us here. When I was growing up, uh, um, I was going to say, when I was growing up, I had a sister. I've still got a sister. I've got two sisters. But my uh, middle sister, uh, Jennifer, uh, had a friend who wanted to go out into uh, Plymouth and get the bus on their own. And my mum had said that my sister uh, is not ready to catch the bus. I think she was about eight years old at the time. And my mum said, there's no way that you are ready to catch the bus into Plymouth. And I always remember my sister's friend said to my mum, yeah, but I, I, I really know Jenny, and she'll be fine. To which my mum's response was, I think I know Jenny a bit better than you. So I know how she, uh, or uh, what she ought to do. Because of the relationship, wasn't it, you see? The relationship that my mum and my sister had was an intimate, close relationship. My mum knows my sister in a way that her friend did not know. 
And that's kind of what's going on here. Jesus knows the Father in such an intimate way, in a way that no one else knows the Father. And so when Jesus has these things committed to him by his Father, we can know that it's, an, it's a, a true and reliable testimony because of the relationship they have. We can trust that Jesus' testimony is true because he knows the Father. And then thirdly, it says, and whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I mean, that's an astonishing claim, isn't it? Jesus has the authority and the reliability to reveal who God is, to reveal the Father. And Jesus chooses who he will reveal this truth to. You can only know the Father then through Jesus, but you will only have the Father revealed to you if Jesus chooses to reveal it to you. This is what's known as as sovereign election, that God chooses those to whom he will reveal himself. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. In our reading, in the very next verse... This same Jesus who chooses to reveal uh, the Father calls people to come to him. And if you're thinking even more, you might think, and in the verses before this Bible reading, Jesus denounces cities because they did not repent. And so to come to Jesus and to repent from sin and turn to Jesus are both actions that we must do. And you might be thinking, well, hold on a minute. How can both those things be true? You can't repent or come to Jesus unless he reveals it to you. But yet at the same time, Jesus is calling us to repent and calling us to come. Well, what's going on? What's going on is that both of these truths are in this passage. And they're both throughout scripture. And they're both true. We know the truth that God is a God who is a sovereign king, the Lord of heaven and earth, who chooses those whom he will save. But also, all through the scripture, we know that God calls us to come, calls us to repent, and so we are a, have a responsibility to do so. And it's a mystery, a mystery that only God fully understands, and people have wrestled with it throughout history. But there are two uh, applications that I want us to draw from each side of this coin, so to speak. First of all, uh, take comfort from sovereign election. Take comfort from the fact that salvation is not down to you being good enough. It's down to Jesus being good enough and Jesus revealing it to you. When we think about coming into God's kingdom, it's great that we don't have to look good enough work hard enough or be perfect enough. It is down to him and him alone to save us. That's good news, isn't it? Because I'm not good enough and I never will be. When we think about staying in God's kingdom, this is wonderful news because when you feel like you've messed up, in fact, when, even when you don't feel like it and you just know it, you have messed up, you're not kicked out of the kingdom. You're not kicked out because it's not down to you. It is down to God choosing you. And when we're witnessing to our neighbors and work colleagues and friends, what a relief to know that them coming to faith is not all down 
to me having to present the gospel perfectly. I don't have to live my life wracked with guilt that I fumbled my words because salvation is down to God. And God can use my fumbling words to save others as well. Isn't that good news? Isn't that a relief to know? Rather than criticize God about who he's not saved, we should be amazed that we are saved, shouldn't we? So take comfort from sovereign election, but secondly, take responsibility from God's commands and calls. When God calls you, come. Rather than worrying about whether you're chosen, just accept the call. Repent. Turn to Jesus as he asks us to do. It's worth noticing here, by the way, the amazing claims that Jesus makes about himself. Jesus is saying here that he's part of the Godhead. Jesus Christ is God. He's the only one to know the truth about God, to know the Father. Jesus is saying it's only through him that you can know God, no one else. And he's saying that it's his choice whom God is revealed to. And in verses 28 to 30, which we'll see in a moment, as he invites people to rest, seven times in those verses, he uses the words either me or I. In other words, the rest that he invites people to, it's all about him. Audacious claims that would be ridiculous were they not true. But Matthew, through the gospel so far, has been showing us that these claims are not ridiculous as we've looked at the birth of Jesus, his baptism, his testing, his teaching, his miracles, and so on and so forth. And as we end the gospel, um, without spoiling the end, I'm sure you know that there's an empty tomb. As we look at all those things, we see that these claims are not ridiculous. Even if they are audacious, they are true. Jesus claims he is the only way to God. And so we can thank God, therefore, that we respond to an invitation. Look at verse uh, 28 and see this wonderful invitation that Jesus gives. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The invitation here is to come to Christ. But who is invited? Well, those, it says, who are weary and burdened. To be weary is to be tired from work or exertion of some kind. And we all know what it is to be weary, don't we? Just from, uh, if, you, if, you've had, if you've ever had a job, um, most jobs weary us, don't they? At the end of a day's work and you're weary, that's what it's been talked about here. And burdened is having a load upon us that is heavy. It's hard to carry. You, we all uh, understand the phrase overloaded. We can feel overloaded at times, can't we? And Jesus says that to those who are weary and burdened, we come to him for rest. Well, in what ways, if we just think for a moment, can we become weary and burdened? Well, there's three ways I want us just to think about uh, very briefly. The first thing uh, that we can be weary and burdened over is guilt over sin. Uh, We can can be weary trying to atone 
for what we have done wrong, trying to be good and have the good outweigh the bad, that's wearying, isn't it? That's tiring. Because you're always trying to, to make up for things that you've done wrong. That's, that, that, that's a, that wearies us. And we're burdened, therefore, with guilt over sin that we have to live with. That's a burden, isn't it? To, to, to live with guilt over sin that you, you can't get rid of. To those who uh, feel that way, Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. We can be weary and burdened with dissatisfaction. It is wearying, it is tiring to try to make yourself happy by pursuing pleasure outside of Jesus. So we can pursue money and sex and power and affirmation from other people and relationships and material things and we go after them and we pursue them and pursue them and pursue them and they never satisfy. And it's tiring to pursue those things over and over again. And we can be burdened then with a longing that cannot be fulfilled and it's heavy because it can never be unloaded. We can't unload the burden to be satisfied because we're always chasing after more dissatisfaction. And the third area where we can be weary and burdened is through external circumstances, through suffering. Suffering comes to all of us if we live long enough and suffering is, is tiring, isn't it? And, and it would be weary. And it can be a great burden that is upon us. Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. So Jesus invites all who are weary through various things or are burdened because of various things. That is all of us, therefore, because we're all this way, he invites us to rest. So the first question, why come to Jesus rather than anything else? The answer, he gives us rest. But there's another question to ask. What is rest? It might, it might be worth defining rest. Well, rest is to stop from an action and to be refreshed in something else. To stop from an action and to be refreshed in something else. So Jesus is saying, if we come to him, we can stop that which is wearying us and burdening us, and we can be refreshed in him. Now, in one sense, that is what salvation is, isn't it? That is what being a Christian, becoming a Christian, is all about. We are weary and burdened with sin. It is wearying to try and atone for it ourselves. It is a burden upon us that we cannot lift. We're always guilty. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he does all the work that's needed to forgive us of our sin. He pays for it. And so we can be refreshed in the forgiveness that is offered to us. You see? So in one sense, we can apply this to being a Christ, becoming a Christian. But there's another sense that Jesus means here by rest. It's a bit deeper than, than just forgiveness of sin, which is, it, when I say just, I don't mean it's a small thing, but it goes further. And the, the way it goes further is actually, a, could be for some of us, a big surprise, and it's in verse 29. In verse 28, Jesus calls us to rest, and verse 29 we read how we find that rest as his people. And the surprise is how we find it. He says, take my yoke and learn from me. Now, what do you think of when you think of rest? 
Maybe you think of a bed, or a recliner, or a jacuzzi, or a spa. But Jesus doesn't say, does he, take up my bed, or take up my recliner, or take up the jacuzzi. Rather, we see Jesus saying, take up a yoke. Well, what is a a yoke? And I've got a picture that um, can show you what a yoke, kind of look, what's being talked about here. Uh, A yoke is a a tool uh, that goes around the neck uh, and helps to carry a burden. It's a tool that goes around the neck to help us to carry uh, a burden. There are other kinds of yoke. Not, I mean, there obviously is the obvious egg yoke. That's not what's being talked about here. Uh, but there's the yoke that goes on animals, where you have two animals yoked together. But the yoke Jesus talks of here is this kind of a yoke that goes on us so we can carry uh, a burden. But the key thing here to understand is that this yoke is a tool for work. So Jesus says we find rest not by taking up a mattress or a chair, as if the kingdom of God is all about sleeping and sitting. Rather, Jesus says, to take up a yoke, an instrument of work. You see, the surprise is this. We find rest in his kingdom by taking his yoke. And his yoke is the demands that he makes of us. They're not soft demands either. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, how we live in his kingdom are quite challenging demands. Through his teaching, that's how we learn of him. So take his yoke and learn from him. Listen to his teaching, see how he lives. We take the yoke of his teaching and we put it on our shoulders and we get to work in his kingdom. Now, you may be thinking, well, that doesn't sound like rest to me. But think a little bit more. Why come to Jesus? He gives us rest. How does Jesus say that we find rest? Take the yoke and learn from him. But then Jesus gives us three reasons in verses 29 and 30 why his yoke and his learning gives us rest. And we find them in verses 29 and 30. And they all begin, the three reasons, with for and and. For and and. So the first, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Second, and you will find rest for your souls. Third, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Three reasons why what sounds like hard work to us actually is the way to true rest. And the first reason is what Jesus is like. Gentle and humble in heart. What Jesus is like. Gentle and humble in heart. Gentleness is uh, about being fair, not being harsh. It's about caring for us. He won't cast us away when we get things wrong. Because we do sometimes, don't we? We still struggle. He doesn't cast us away and throw us out. He is, he is gentle. He won't give us more than we can bear. He is gentle. Uh, Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 3 uh, talks of, of Jesus. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. 
Jesus is gentle. But he's also humble in heart. That is, that Jesus is a leader or a master who knows what it's like to be in our position. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He knows what it's like on earth to take the yoke of his father. He is not some tyrant who is ruling over us, but he's a humble friend who is walking with us. That's the master who Jesus is. We take the yoke, not of a tyrant, but of a friend who knows what that yoke is like because he carried it himself. He is gentle and humble in heart. Now, all of us are yoked to something. There is a master that controls all of our lives. We talked this morning, and this links in really well with that, about how uh, before we are Christians, we are slaves to sin. And all of us are yoked to something. There is a master that has a yoke around our neck that is giving us a burden that we carry. That master might be uh, Satan it might, uh, and, and sin, uh, money and sex and lust and comfort. They're all yokes. They're all masters, but they are cruel. They are unrelenting. They never satisfy. They are anything but gentle and humble in heart. So the first reason why we can trust that Jesus' yoke gives us rest is because the man who gives the yoke to us is gentle and humble in heart. So what Jesus is like. Second, the kind of rest he gives is another reason. The kind of rest he gives. And you will find rest for your souls. Notice that. The rest is not just external rest. It is deep is satisfying. It is at the very core of our being. That's the kind of rest Jesus gives. It's for our souls. It is rest that is not transient, but it is eternal. Jesus gives us rest to our very souls now as we obey Christ's commands and eternally as we enter Christ into his heavenly rest. Rest for our souls. And then thirdly, is the kind of yoke and burden he gives us. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice that, the kind of yoke, it is easy and light. Now, um, easy doesn't mean the Christian life is never hard. The word there, easy, means it fits well, it's uh, comfortable, uh, really, the best way uh, to describe it, perhaps, is made to measure. It is a yoke that doesn't chafe the shoulders. It's a yoke that is designed for your neck, so that when you're carrying it, it is not chafing, it is not hard, it is comfortable. It's like a, like a onesie, you know, something like that. <laughs> so it's an easy, an easy yoke. And it is light. It is not... Uh, the, the, the burden is light. The burden that goes on the yoke is not one that is too heavy for us to carry and we're really struggling, but it is light. And part of the reason it's light is because there's no sin in there. We don't have to carry the burden of sin. That's a great weight that's lifted from that burden. But there is, nevertheless, some burden. It takes 
effort to follow Jesus, doesn't it? To be in his kingdom isn't about taking up a bed or a recliner. It is a yoke. So it takes effort to follow Jesus as we're in his kingdom, but it's a burden that's light. It's something that God gives us that is not more than we can carry. So the surprise at the beginning of verse 29 is that it is a yoke, but this yoke is unlike any other yoke. It is easy and the burden is light. Well, here is the key point that Jesus is making about this rest. The key to finding the rest that Jesus offers is not no work, but rather kingdom work or fitting work or satisfying work. Now hear me clearly here. This is not me saying that you can work your way into the kingdom. We've seen that. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. We are like little children. We depend on God. We depend on revelation. But within God's kingdom... He gives us a a, a yoke at the gate and we carry it on through as we follow Jesus. And the key to finding the rest is not no work, but rather kingdom work, satisfying work. The work is what is the commands that Jesus gives and the rest comes, and here's what we, we need to hear this, is the rest comes because what Jesus gives us to do and how we to live is what we are designed to do. It's, it's living within the grain of how God made us, which is why it's rest. True joy comes from living for Jesus, which is the yoke that he gives us. And the rest that we are offered is a wonderful rest from what wearies and burdens. Let's think of those three areas again, guilt over sin, dissatisfaction, and external circumstances. How is it that we can find rest in those things? Well, we think of guilt over sin. There is no guilt because Jesus has paid it all. We don't obey to earn credit. We can't earn our salvation. We rest, rest from the the, the guilt and the penalty of sin. Dissatisfaction. Well, I no longer in God's kingdom need to be dissatisfied at a lack of rest that I get from pursuing happiness outside of Christ. Rather, I know that true satisfaction comes as I obey him, as I strive to follow him, I pursue Christ with all my heart. I rest from those harsh masters that make me miserable, and I go after the Jesus who is gentle and humble in heart, and I find rest for my soul. You see? And then external circumstances. When suffering comes with the yoke of Jesus, doesn't mean that the suffering is easy. Doesn't mean that life is all roses. But the burden is so much lighter when we suffer with the promises of God. Isn't it? That we we have something we can look to, a hope that is sure. Jesus is with us. His promises sustain us. Those external circumstances don't need to crush us and destroy us because Jesus gives us hope and he's with us as the gentle and humble in heart. Well, the Old Testament people of God, when we read the Old Testament, they rejected God and life was miserable for them. And the Old Testament people of God 
Uh, we've seen this in, as we looked at kings, were overtaken by the enemies. And Jeremiah was a prophet who uh, called God's people back to God. And Jeremiah was a prophet that talked uh, about how outside uh, pursuing uh, God's away from the true and living God doesn't lead to satisfaction. In fact, in Jeremiah, that's where we read about systems with holes where we try and fill them up and they empty out, they never satisfy. But this verse where Jesus talks about rest for our souls comes from Jeremiah. Because in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16, as Jeremiah called people away from God, this is uh, what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. The people of God were offered rest for their souls as they walked the way of God. But they said, we will not walk in it. And they were destroyed by other masters who were, whose yokes were anything but easy. They were killed, taken captive, they lost all that they had. And Jesus Christ comes hundreds of years later, and to, the, to, to people in his day, he gives this invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And the question is, will you respond by coming to Jesus, or like the people of the Old Testament in Jeremiah, will you say, no, we will not walk that way. I've got another master whose yoke I'm going to use instead. And if you choose that path, you will be destroyed, if not in this life, certainly in the next. Rather, let us heed the call of Jesus and Jeremiah to take the ancient paths, the good way, and humbly and passionately pursue Christ for his glory and for our satisfaction. And let's find rest both now and forevermore. Well, before we come to the Lord's uh, table where we remember how rest for our souls was achieved by Jesus, uh, we're going to sing, uh, stand and sing, Grace Unmeasured. So let's stand and sing of the wonderful grace uh, that God has shown us. And let's praise him and give him thanks for that.